0: Initially, it was quite exciting, wasn't it? we have never been in anything like this before. Um, I was living at the time in a house on a beach. So all of a sudden, we had the beach all to ourselves. And the village uh, shop, grocery shop, delivered a fruit and veg. And my partner's son very kindly went to the supermarket for us. My partner oh, has a immune system that's not as good as it should be. So I was kind of shielding her. So initially, it was really interesting and kind of um when it happened in the uk it happened the first lockdown happened the week of mother's day mother's day was the following sunday so i think it's a different day in the u.s i seem to remember it was
1: like maybe spain and italy right after asia and then you were maybe a couple of weeks before us
0: yeah and so i suddenly thought of all those people who i'm sadly my mom's not around anymore but you know The thought of going to see your mum on Mother's Day, particularly if she's older and perhaps passing on the infection. I I wrote a song called uh, "Can't Be There Today," so it kind of I found the the moment quite emotionally inspiring, and then kind of dived into hooking up online with people and all those projects, which eventually was I finally realised I was working harder than I worked in you know (laughs) we were in normal times, and it kind of just seemed to be just. Going nowhere. So I fell out the back of that when that lockdown ended. And I was starting to try and think about making a record when the second lockdown came in. And that was a a real shock to me because I thought, this is just going to keep happening. I kind of momentarily lost my bearings for a bit. But focusing on making an album really helped me get through the second lockdown. The first lockdown, I suppose, because it was never happened before, you know, it was kind of engaging. The novelty. Yeah. But the second lockdown, um, that's when I really committed to writing the album. And for me, I had to do it in a completely different way than I've ever made an album. What I would normally do is spend that year, 2020, out on the road, knowing that I've got to make an album next year, trying out songs in a soundcheck, trying out ideas. What have I got? You know, bits I've sung on my phone, titles that I fit together. At the end of it, you know, I'd have a load of – Tryouts that my sound guy recorded, and then I'd take them home and, and, you know, work on the ones that I thought were going to make good tracks. But with no gigs, I had to start literally start with a blank sheet of paper. I went up to the loft room at our old house, and I sat down, and I wrote about twenty titles of songs that I thought might make good songs—just titles. That is a complete opposite from
1: just about every musician I've spoken to. Yeah, the title always comes much later.
0: Yeah, that's it. But you kind of you're, you're looking for uh, points of reference. What do I want to write about? What will be interesting to write about? And sometimes, you know, I I, I often uh, write down lyrics or hum songs into my phone. But sometimes I just do write down your title. Ten mysterious photos that can't be explained was actually the name of a page on YouTube that kept coming up at the bottom of my, you know, when you go on YouTube, obviously a load of other things to look at. That kept coming up every day, every day it was there, almost kind of haunting me and daring me to look on it. And every day I thought to myself, you know what? Those photos are not going to be mysterious and I'm going to be able to explain them in about 30 seconds. I'm not going there. But it kind of, it said something to me about the way we're so easily distracted by squirrels on the internet. You know, oh look, a squirrel! You know, off you go. And you know, I find even this watching soccer. You know, I watch soccer, and I just, I see a player, and I think, oh, who, who did he used to play for? I get my phone out, start searching that. T- Ten minutes later, I've lost the thread of the game. It's terrible. I think we might be the squirrels sometimes. Yeah. So I'm, you know, that that title was there. Um, the million things that never happened. That was there as a title as well. Uh, the bug doesn't stop here anymore. I wanted to write something about the refusal of some politicians to take responsibility for their actions, most notably Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. So I kind of, you know, I was, I suppose I was trying to think about the architecture of the album, what it might address, how it might come on. But I was also thinking that if I'm going to write about living through the pandemic, I can't do that by writing about living through the pandemic. I'm going to have to come at it at a slightly... You know, side eye way and, you know, let people bring their own sensibility to it rather than me laying down the law about what I thought it was all about. So, most of the songs, you know, songs like uh, Should Have Seen It Coming, you could, I, ho- I hope a listener could apply that to anything in their life, anything from a heartbreak to a uh, truck um that i didn't see coming so you know that's that's a, a much better way of writing songs i think than actually nailing it on the
1: head every time something i was vaguely concerned about during the pandemic is that at a certain point we were just going to get a glut of movies and songs and everything was going to be about the pandemic by the time we were ready to be over it.
0: yeah i mean i was worried the other way around i was worried that i mean normally as a as a songwriter and this may be true for all art because what what's the justification for creating art other than trying to offer a perspective that you haven't seen or you don't think anyone's thought of you know you're generally trying to draw the audience's attention to something that you think they've missed and you think is important but when it's something as universal as the pandemic which everybody in the world has experienced how do you bring a fresh view to that how do you evoke how that feels how do you you know shine a light in a corner of that that you think hasn't properly been covered so in the end, there's only really one song in the album that directly addresses the pandemic, and that's the title track, The Million Things That Never Happened. So, in that sense, it's not about the pandemic, uh, the album, but it is of the pandemic.
1: Is that something that you generally think about when writing songs, um, specificity? Because certainly that is a... that can be a trap when it comes to political songs in particular, right? That you're really positioning something
0: in a place and time. Yeah, you do have to be a little bit careful about that i mean you know there's one song on the album that's clearly about uh, uh donald trump's presidency but it try and it tries to make the case by questioning whether a country born in revolution like the united states of america really needs a king emperor because i think that there's something in the way people support trump that touches on something very familiar in our country which is what we used to refer to as the divine right of kings which is absolutism or, or now we would call that authoritarianism, but it's really absolutism. Whatever I say is fact. If I say my uh, apartment in Trump Tower is three times bigger than it actually is, then that is true. That's the truth. And as a you know, as a subject, you have to accept that because I've been anointed by God. Good thing Trump is not prone to exaggeration, though. So <laughs> yeah. So that you know, trying to write about that aspect of it and you know, giving an outsider's view on the de- development of uh, democracy and the constitution in the US and how, the tr- you know, what Trump is doing runs totally contrary to that tradition, which is, a, which is a fine old tradition, you know, the oldest democracy in the world. So trying to approach it from that way rather than just, you know, hitting the guy over the head with an ammo, which is easy, easy to do, uh, to try and draw people into a little bit more thought about, those those issues about accountability. I think that's really what's lacking in our politics, whether we're talking about the US, UK, obviously Russia and China, but elsewhere as well, India as well, to some extent. In fact, many places. Authoritarianism seems to be putting pressure on democracy in a way that we haven't seen since the 1930s. You know, As a songwriter, as a, a songwriter who tries to talk a little about politics, I think that's really something worth underlining. I used to ask this
1: question a lot of, people who have a few years on me prior to the pandemic specifically in this country people who had lived through nixon and watergate whether in spite of all that whether this time still fe- felt unprecedented now obviously the pandemic is is certainly very unprecedented in you know the last 100 years but is there is there a way in which the current moment really does feel different
0: well there is um there was an obvious moment in the way the uh, obvious uh uh, thing in the the way this moment feels different and that's because we have a new king and that's kind of really thrown the span in the works on top of everything else in my country you know someone who's always been there in our lives suddenly not there anymore and whether you're a supporter of the monarchy or not and i'm pretty ambivalent about it to tell you the truth as long as they stay out of politics it is a very very strange moment there you know Because the the Queen had a a very strange position position in our culture because she had um comes from that generation born in the nineteen twenties where my parents come from their key experience was the Second World War, so she was able to evoke that in a way that nobody else in our society could do. I'll give you an instance. There was a song very very popular in the Second World War in my country. In fact, it kind of really sums up the whole cultural aspect of the war by by a woman called Vera Lynn called We'll Meet Again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. You know, if you ever want to do a parody of the Second World War, you would use that song. It's really universally known, you know? Famously at the end of Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, exactly. It is at the end of Dr. Strangelove. Exactly that. Now, during the pandemic, the Queen, when the first lockdown, the Queen made a broadcast, national TV broadcast. And, and she, in the context of that broadcast, she said, you know, we will get through this. We will overcome the health problem. We will see our friends again. We'll see our family again. We'll meet again. And when she said that, it was like, okay, she's the message she's sending there is, you know, we've been through this shit before where our backs have been up against the wall and we got through it. My generation got through it. Your generation might get through it too. Now, to have someone like that in your society you can do that is a pretty special thing, you know. So when they buried her last week, I think with her, they buried that generation who went through the Second World War and had those experiences. She was kind of the, the last representative of that generation visible in our society. Obviously, some of them are still around in their 90s, but you don't see them. You don't hear from them. My parents' generation, really. And I think that's, you know, when I was watching the funeral. Because it's compelling to what you have to, you know, you have to tune in. That's what I I was mourning, really. That it was, it was, you know, my parents' generation, you know, the so-called great generation. I'm not sure they would themselves call themselves that, but they're they're kind of gone now. She and she with them. So that really does put us in the UK, anyway, in a a very different place. We've lost that connection to what probably was the defining experience of the british identity in the last 150 years which is the second world war what happened in the second world war so that's kind of that's a that's a very strange and sudden as well i mean i know she's been old for a long time but you know one day she was shaken as the new prime minister the next day she was gone it was very very strange
1: very strange you'd said your feelings about the monarchy in general are ambivalent but It's also unavoidable to not have a complicated relationship with a figure like that.
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to to ignore that figure altogether. They're on your coins in your pocket. You can't just ignore them. But to separate the person from the office, she did a uh, a really good job of not saying anything. So allowing everybody to put their own idea of who she was onto her. Very, very clever, you know? And- I don't think that that ability is going to be something that um, the new king can do because we're all a bit over familiar with him. You know, we know all these points of view. We know all the things he's done. We know he once referred to himself as a tampon in a phone call that was taped. You know, it's going to be hard to to row back from that. Uh, so things are going to be uh, very, very different. And then on top of that, that's how do we feel about uh, having a monarchy? You know, for a long time, I've felt that, you know, the monarchy at the very least needs reforming and p- perhaps possibly getting rid of it. But um, over the last couple of weeks, a number of people have pointed out that, um, you know, having an elected president isn't always a good idea. Not pointing any fingers in any directions, Brian, not wanting to suggest Anyone's particular president. Well, as, thankfully, uh,
1: we always do it according to the popular vote here. So, yeah. really, we are really yeah. adhering
0: to the will of the people. Yeah. So yeah. So while I'm, you know, I, I you know, I don't, uh, I'm not a fan of uh, of the monarchy, and I think it really needs be to be reformed because we have a weird constitution in which, in our constitution, there's no uh, document that begins with the People." Our Constitution is based on an agreement between the Crown and the Parliament in sixteen eighty nine so we're not we don 't really get a looking, and we should get a look in. you know we should have a written constitution uh, as you have in the United States of America, but sadly, Tom Paine was born a hundred years too late for all that to go down, so we've still got this kind of weird seventeenth century concoction and where the whether the monarchy would fit under a written constitution uh, i don 't know, but I think all this all this is up for grabs the last couple of weeks. The most familiar thing you've heard people say, and I said it myself, is "I'm not a monarchist, but you know, I'm I'm going to watch the funeral." I'm not a monarchist, but the Queen did a good job. I'm not a monarchist, but like that. I think between now, there's going to be there'll be a coronation in the spring, I guess, and I wouldn't be surprised if people start saying, "I'm not a Republican, but I wouldn't be surprised if the if the tide starts flowing the other way. Whether that leads to a change of mood in the UK, I don't know, but I think if if there is going to be a change, it, it more likely will come from places like the Caribbean, where there are countries there like Jamaica are already talking about becoming republics. These are countries where the Queen is the head of state. There are 14 countries other than the UK where the Queen is head of state. You know, and I think if you know if, if the Canadians become a republic or the Australians, I can't imagine that wouldn't have a, a big knock-on effect in the UK in many ways, because we share her with or share her share the King. With uh, other other people, they have a say as well. You know, people have been talking here as if it's just our gig, but it's not. Other people have a shout in this, and many more of them than us. So, uh, yeah, it's it is very strange times.
1: It's interesting to hear you talk about the Queen as a as a person that way. Are you predisposed to find the best in people?
0: I'm predisposed to have a bit of empathy towards people, you know, and, and have a, and I want to and I. In that sense, I'm talking about monarchists who are genuinely bereft as she's passed away. They're mourning something more than just the death of a 96 year old lady. They've really lost uh, a figurehead, but they, they really identify with her. And I, I, you know, I respect their right to mourn, and I expect them to respect our right to dissent from the, from the succession of Charles III. You know, we've kept our you know, we've sat on our hands while they buried her, out of respect, and rightly so too. You know, give them their due. Um, but now, when when when's not a good time to debate the the changing of a monarch when the when the crown passes passing between two individuals? Surely that's the time to have a debate about about what it means. But yeah, to me, it's it's more about empathy. You know, i i have my I have my criticism of of them but I'm not about to go in, you know, to, um, to score points. I'd rather go in and say, look, you know, this isn't really a done deal. We're not, you know, we're not the only people who have a, a dog in this fight. And, and you know, I've I've done a few things on uh, on Facebook to try and express where I think we are. And I think it's worth it's worth you know, showing some respect to the pros and showing some respect to the antis as well, you know, cause there's a lot of people out there who, who really, really don't like the monarchy and don't like how it makes them feel. And I, you know, and I can, I can grasp that as well, but really the powers, the powers not in the crown, the powers in parliament. And we have i I don't know if you know, we have an unelected second chamber who are put there. Yeah. On patronage exclusively uh, rich landowners is that right well kind of it started like that yeah now it's friends of the prime minister that's why we should be getting angry about in some ways the the, the the royal family is a distraction from that the you know really we should be talking about the the accountability in in the, in the houses of parliament rather than accountability in in the monarchy because it's right that um that amount of, that lack of accountability shouldn't really be part of a national institution except in a monarchy. Unfortunately, that's the way monarchies work, and that's the way monarchies have always worked. So there is always going to be a bit of that there. You know, I've always said if they would slim themselves down like a European, you know, what we call a cycling monarchy monarchy like they have in Scandinavia, then and they're just a symbol for people and people feel, you know, some continuity with that i don't have a problem with that you know it's like you know it's like the the, you know the church of england i don't i'm not a i'm not a religious person i'm not a um you know i'm not a great fan of organized religion but if they knocked down the 13th century church in the town where i was born where i was christened i'd be i'd i'd feel a loss i'd walk past her every day and think that you know there's something there's something that was in my community for Seven hundred, eight hundred years is now gone, and, I, and you know I'd feel that I would feel that loss, even though I don't go in there. You know, I think that's a great analogy. And
1: on the religious front, I think it is possible to not be a fan of organized religion and the things that it's uh, created over time, but still appreciate that it can have a positive
0: impact on people's lives. It certainly did on my mum. She found, you know, when my dad passed away, she found great strength in in prayer, and I respect that. You know, she didn't ask me to go to church. She didn't even really go to church herself. But she just found praying and that kind of thing to be something that helped her get through. And what is religion, if not something that helps us get through things, you know? So, you know, as I say again, I'm I'm not someone who wants to go around, you know, attacking people uh, because of their beliefs, as long as they're not forcing their views on anybody else, not just me, but anybody else as well. I'm quite happy, you know, I'm quite happy for them to believe what they believe. I
1: certainly think that in a vast majority of situations that that empathy is, is the right reaction. And I do think that it is a defining characteristic of the left as well. Certainly when you're speaking of, you know, groups of people, whether it is, you know, these people who feel a deep loss from the death of the, the queen or, you know, whether it is members of a church, but specifically when speaking of individual people
0: is there a limit
1: to empathy
0: i don't think there empathy can be you know on under any terms i think it's where you have to it's a place where you have to start you know and give people the benefit of the doubt obviously um, you know it's that famous we can tolerate anything except intolerance if you you know ultimately you have to be able to confront abuse you have to be able to confront violence but it's, this is a very important Conversation to have, I think, with a musician because I've long believed that empathy is the currency of music. It's what we do for a living. You know, we're trying to um, draw some empathy from the listener to the thing that we're writing about, whether it's a person in a relationship or a political situation where people are suffering or whatever it is. We're trying to get the listener to feel some compassion towards the, the subjects that we're writing about. And then at the same time, there's another way it works, whereby the listener finds that the, the song that they're listening to somehow touches on their own experience. You know, that thing about you feel like the songwriter's reading your mail, that feeling. Then you're, you're drawing some empathy from the song. You know, it's a, two, a two-way thing. You're, you're getting that sense from the song that you're not alone in, in this pain that you feel in this situation that you find yourself. And so perhaps that helps it, you know, be a little easier to to carry that particular load. So that, that then becomes really more important when we live in a time where it seems like there's a bloody war on empathy, where anyone who expresses any compassion for anybody else is immediately attacked as virtue signaling or uh, being politically correct or being woke, whatever woke is. I'm not really sure how it's currently... Find every time I see it written down, it seems to have a different meaning. So, yeah, I think these these are issues that I've long thought about. And initially, I suppose I articulated them through my politics because obviously socialism is hugely about empathy. It's one, you know, it's got to be part of the starting point in many ways. But, but you know, in recent years, I've come to realize I, I really should be talking about this more. You know, it's always been there. I mean, the Milkman of Human Kindness is a song about empathy. But then so is I Will Be Your Shield of the new album. You know, one the two songs are really saying the same thing uh, in uh, in different keys.
1: One of the lines that really jumped out at me is "is freedom's just another word for acting with impunity. For the obvious reason of it, you know, obviously being a play on the, the Janis Joplin, freedom's just another word for nothing left Chris, to Chris, lose. Thomas. But also... Oh, was, was did he write that?
0: He did, yeah. Chris Christopher, yeah. As a songwriter, I've got to shout. much as I love Janice, I have to stick up for Chris. He wrote he wrote me and Bobby McGee, yeah.
1: That's exactly the piece of information I feel like I would know. And I, I I'm embarrassed that I didn't, but but thanks for pointing that out. Um Pleasure. your take on the Chris Christofferson line strikes me in this instance about being about the pandemic in a certain sense of certainly here, I think it's probably the case there, but very much here. There were conversations around bodily autonomy and, you know, wearing masks and and the freedom to get vaccinated or not get vaccinated. And this to me speaks very directly to that conflict.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what I was trying to, to get onto. I mean, it was amazing during, um, I did, I managed to do a UK tour last year in between the end of Delta and the start of Omicron by more by luck than judgment. It was amazing how it, how it happened. But, while I was on tour, the uh, theatres, the government still had um, rules about going to the theatre, mostly around um, lat- what we call lateral flow tests. You know, the public, the test you can buy and uh, and try and do yourself. Different rules, and the, the weird thing was, we did England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and each of the countries had different rules. So it was a little bit complicated. Only sometimes slightly different, but other times really different. We played in in. Uh, Galway in the west of Ireland. The entire audience had to keep face masks on for the whole gig, which was very weird for someone who relies on facial expressions, particularly smiles and frowns, when I'm talking. You know, to know that the audience is with me or against me. It was a very, very strange gig. But um, so when I when I was tweeting out what time I'm on stage, you know, the stage times, I was also tweeting out the rules. You know, by the way, make sure you bring a lateral flow test or you know proof of vaccination, so people don't get cut off at yeah, the exactly. door. But that also uh, uh, caught the eye of, shall we say, the anti-mandate people, who were very angry with me. Not the anti-vax. I mean, in some ways, as a as a uh, apprehensive flyer, I have some sympathy for the anti vaxxers because you know I know flying is is you know v- safe and. I know, you know, very few planes plummet from the sky, but you can talk to me rationally about that all day. I still feel awful going up and happy coming down. So I have some sympathy for people who, you know, worry about vaccinations. But the anti-mandate people, the I don't want anybody telling me what to do kind of people. I have a real problem with those people. And um, so, I, you know, I bit back a bit. I'll be honest with you. I fought back a bit. And it culminated in Brighton, of all places, Brighton, of all places, where they would demonstrating outside the gig about me. and I sing about freedom, but take people's freedom away, they were saying. And it was just preposterous. I mean, I, I, I kind of wandered back to the soundcheck and I, I saw them out there. So I, without making myself known, I kind of tagged on the far end and got chatting with one of the guys. What was this about? You know, he knew I was. And he, he said to me that asking people to take a lateral flow test to get into a gig is a form of apartheid. Now, you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a fighting man, but that to me was just so, so unbelievably offensive to the real victims of discrimination, racial discrimination. So I just kind of walked away. But you know, I my concern really is is more rather than the freedom of the people who refuse to accept the mandate. I'm more interested in the freedom of people who can't leave their homes during the pandemic because their immune system's not up to taking a chance with the virus. They've been trapped in their homes for a long time um, when we were doing that tour. And my solidarity is with them rather than the me, me, me people, because I think that the core of that kind of libertarianism is the idea that the world revolves around you and that you have no responsibility to anybody else. And that, you know, I find that troubling particularly in a, a situation where um, many of us are in danger. You know, there are times when you have to uh, act in the common good rather than express your individual freedom all the time. I'm 100% in favor of individual freedom, but there are some times where you have to act in the common good. One of them was during the pandemic. You had to take responsibility for not spreading the virus around. Another one is during, now during the climate crisis. If we can't manifest uh, support at a national level for the common good in dealing with the climate crisis, then we really, really are in trouble, big trouble. And apart from those few libertarians, I was quite encouraged by the way people responded to the pandemic In in where I live in, in Dorset. Long after the mask mandate had ended, people were still wearing masks in the local big supermarket obviously to protect themselves, but also to protect others. You know, the staff are wearing them. I'll, I'll put mine on, you know, and, I, and I, I'm encouraged by that. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to uh, be thrown off course by a few noisy individuals who think that they're, you know, they're right to do whatever it is they want to do, whenever it is they want to do it to whoever it is they want to do it to with no comeback. That's not freedom. That's Donald Trump's Twitter feed. You know, it's like, you know that's that freedom. Freedom involves liberty, yeah, but it also involves equality, and it definitely involves accountability. And that last one, I think, is what gives freedom its teeth. You know, otherwise, it's just a you know another word for nothing left to lose, as someone once wrote. Who can say who wrote that though? We, we <laughs> might
1: we might never know. There's a video of you. I, I interview is a strong word, but there's a video of you on YouTube. I don't know if that was a Brighton show, but somebody you know has a camera in your face and is asking you questions as a protest is going on.
0: The demonstration here tonight, I support. These people have a right not to be vaccinated. I support that right. But with that right comes the responsibility. The responsibility, that means that they have to face the consequences of their decision, which I support. The consequences are they're not allowed into the gig. And freedom if it is only about doing whatever you want to do with no consequences, that's not liberty. That's license. There was a kid there from uh, from a video news thing. I did say to him, look, you know, come on. I think we stepped into the foyer. I said, look, come in here. Let me just tell you where I'm co- where I'm coming from on this so you so you know, all right? Rather than me just shouting at all these people and saying it at the gig, if you're going to put this up on YouTube, then let me tell you where I'm coming from. And said, I'm cool with that. You know, I'm happy to do that. I want to get my thoughts out there. Um, and it certainly gave some edge to the gig, I have to say. There's nothing like a demo outside the gig to get everyone riled up in in, in the gig. But, uh, yeah, um, you know, it, of course there's a debate about how much we do and how far we go and, you know, who's responsible for for this and, and that. But in the end, it's about having empathy for other people. It is about doing what is, at the moment, Considered to be the best thing for the most the greatest amount of people, and you know, refusing to do that isn't isn't the definition of of liberty. You know, it's the definition of irresponsibility, as far as I'm concerned. One of the reasons why I bring that video up specifically is because you do I bite the guy? Do I bite him or something? Or do I put the nut on him? No, no. It's in in fact, it's quite the opposite. I
1: I mean, I would probably bring it up if you did bite the guy because that would be interesting for different reasons. But I just think the act of walking up to him and, and, and engaging with him and, and taking the time to answer his questions in a non-biting civil manner is is fairly rare. Not everybody would do that.
0: Well, you know, the last few, the last decade, um, I think a lot of us have come to realize that we have to be accountable for our views in social media. If someone has a criticism of you, um, you have an opportunity to talk back, you know. I'm often, uh, it says on my Twitter, uh, profile, um, the great curse of social media is that perception always trumps intention. You know, you say something, but someone's always going to get it the wrong way around. And and there's no context on Twitter. No, or nuance. So you have to be, you have to be willing to try and engage in nuance. I mean, i I wrote this the post uh, on Facebook a couple of days ago about the succession uh, of uh, of Charles the, the third and uh, you know it was obviously too long for some people but you know I, I kind of had you know it there's a lot of, lot of nuance involved in there and as a songwriter detail is really uh, is really important to me so I will I will write a, you know a long post or try to put across my my point of view I'd rather I'd rather the guy have a video of me talking rather than have someone else, you know, do a, a a pricey of what they think I believe, because very often people put words into your mouth. So seeing as the guy was there filming and he was, you know, he was cool. I was cool. He was cool. Neither of us were, were uh, angry with one another. I was like, just duck in here with me and just, you know, let's, let's have a chat about this. So, you know where I'm coming from. And I think it's worth doing that. I think it's worth, Taking the opportunity to put your view across, I think that's right. And I'm from San Francisco
1: originally. I live in New York now. These are both bubbles. They're political bubbles, and you know, I, I certainly in my life probably don't have or don't take opportunities to engage with people enough. It's it's hard to do, obviously, on Twitter. And I do think that there is such a thing as acting in bad faith, but
0: a lot of that, a lot of that out there.
1: It's important to take that opportunity if you can, and if you're able to engage with somebody in a you know thoughtful in a thoughtful manner. Also, you might learn something.
0: You know, I mean, I, a couple of the uh, guys who got back to me about my views about Charles the Third on Facebook were members of the armed forces, and in the armed forces they have to swear allegiance. There's an oath of allegiance to the royal, the, the monarch, and their family to defend them. Well, of course, we don't have a constitution, and we had an interesting conversation about how you feel about that. You know. Is that a, a just a, a, you know, a kind of blanket thing that you're just doing it the monarch? Or do you think about the personality of the person that you're pledging allegiance to? Which is an interesting conversation. And clearly, one of these guys had never really thought about it like that way before.
1: So, I mean, we do have a constitution, but here it's the flag. They say that about the flag specifically.
0: Yeah. I think that, because I was saying to this guy, he was asking me what, because obviously he was thinking of a, an elected president, but I was saying, well, I'd, I'd rather that they Swore to uphold the constitution and the laws of the country and defend that rather than an individual. Because with an individual, you never know what the personality is going to be like. You know, we've been lucky the last 70 years. But who knows where we could go in the future? Uh, Equally with someone elected, you know, that could go just as pear-shaped. So having something above that and a constitution fundamentally is a set of rules by which we agree to be governed. We consent to be governed. You know, I think that's a more powerful... A backstop to uh, uh, authoritarianism, uh, and um, you know, a a situation where someone tries to take control—a coup or um, something—than just an individual. And um, and it was an interesting, interesting conversation we had. You know, he was the same. He he said it probably would be better being a constitution, but sadly, we haven't got a constitution. And he was right. And I was, you know, he kind of came back back to me, and we discovered that apparently the navy the Royal Navy don't have to take the oath of allegiance because the the Navy are not governed by government. They're governed by the monarchy and their loyalty is taken for granted. So I learned something. I didn't know this. He told me this. I didn't know this. And I was like, oh, okay, mate. That's interesting. I've learned something. So that's why it's always worth trying to engage with someone. So long as they're civil with you, as soon as people start taking personal shots or you know, use an abusive language, I'm kind of out. But if someone's having a civil disagreement with you, I, I don't see any reason not to uh, at least attempt to engage with them. It might be fruitless. It might be wasting time. But you might, you might, be, you know, you might be able to sharpen your arguments. You know, they might give you something to really that you've not thought about before that allows you to come at it from a different angle. And in the end, you can, go, you can only um, read so much. It's when you get out into the world and start putting those ideas up there and allow people to uh, criticize them and respond to them that you actually learn how to, to be, uh, think in a much more uh, focused and rational way about what you're trying to say and how to say it in a way that's not offensive. Because what I was, you know, what I was saying earlier about accountability we need more of that in social media you know and by that i mean you know is this person i'm arguing with responding to my questions or are they just ignoring the questions and going on and on and on you know am i answering their questions am i accountable to them am i focusing on what they're asking me and am i coming back you know you have got to bring your own rules to uh to to talking on social media and my my red line is not um offense my red line is abuse Someone's abusive, I'm out, they're blocked, that's it, all over. Abusive to me or abusive to anyone else, not just, you know, having a go at me. So I think if everybody brought their brought their, their own rules, it would help because it's a pretty lawless place in which the 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 loud and the angry often shout down the, the reasonable and the thoughtful. And that's not a good place to have a debate.
1: I had Ralph Nader on the show a year or two ago and Something that he said to me that has stuck with me was he doesn't believe that you can effectively do activism online, that it needs to be done in person now obviously, you know you, you have been over these past two years probably more online than you've ever been in your past, but is it can you affect that meaningful change
0: on the internet? Well, it depends how how you define change, I suppose you know you have to remember I'm a musician, I sing about shit. Do you think that changes anything? Does that bring about meaningful change? In my experience, no, it doesn't. But what it does do is it changes people's perception about the world and about themselves. And sometimes it just makes them feel that they're part of something bigger. You know, when I come off stage at night, you know, I've, so I've ended with there is power and a union. And, you know, majority of the audience has been singing along, You know, a good number of them have had their fists in the air. You know, we finish off a big big old song like that. And I come off stage and and my activism is recharged. And my cynicism is temporarily kicked to the curb again. You know, I feel great. And I realise that my job is to make the audience feel the same, go home feeling the same, that their activism is recharged. Not necessarily because what I have said, although obviously that plays an important part in it and what I've sung, But because they've seen that there's a room full of people who give a shit about this stuff in their town, so that when they're in whatever environment it is where they feel like they're in a minority, they can, you know, get back some of that solidarity from the room to, uh, you know, keep them focused. And that's how music does have an effect. And I would argue you can do that with a Facebook post as well. You can do. I'm not sure if you can do it with a tweet. I don't know about that. But you can certainly with a with a Facebook post. You can offer, you can, you know, question older people's perception, and in the and in the the back and forth in the you know below the line as well, perhaps. So I think it's worthwhile engaging in those things. But in the end, it is about people going out and voting, going out and organising, going out on the streets and demonstrating. It's it, that's how the world changes, um, and that's something you know Ralph Nader has more experience in that. And I can, and I can see why he, he thinks that that is the, the the prime, primal way of doing politics. I understand that. But for someone like myself, who comes from a more cultural political background, writing a song or writing a blog, um, you know, talking between the songs or writing six hundred words on Facebook, it's you know, it's all part to me. It's all part and parcel of the same attempt to change people's perception about the way of the world An
1: important dimension of this that somebody brought to my attention recently when i asked him a similar question was that mm-hmm. the other role that it plays is is just the role of getting people in the same room together you know that that music can be a rallying point and and therefore a starting point for organization
0: oh most well, surely yeah i mean I, and I speak not in abstract here but from experience my first political activism was to go to a rock against racism. Concert in London in 1978 in uh, Victoria Park, the first big rug Against Racism" rally, ostensibly to express my opposition to the National Front, who were a big political party in London at the time. They came third in the the uh, London Council elections a couple of years before, but also to see the Clash. They were playing. They were. They were the National bit, Front, who are ba- essentially Nazis. Yeah, yeah, fascist, neo-fascist party. Yeah, but at that gig something really interesting happened. Um, and it wasn't really the clash that did it to me. They did an important thing. They got me there. But what gave me the courage of my convictions was, be, it was seeing 100,000 kids just like me coming together for this cause and realizing that this issue of discrimination was going to be the defining issue of my generation in the way that The Vietnam War defined the previous generation. And in my country, the campaign for nuclear disarmament did in the 1950s. In the 1970s, we were going to be the generation of free Nelson Mandela, of two-ton, of artists against apartheid. That was going to be who we were. And it also um, introduced me uh, the first time I, I ever saw any out gay men. I'm sure in my 19, 20 years, I'd met gay men before, but I'd never met an out gay man. And Tom Robinson was on the bill and he had a song called Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay. And when he sang this song, a load of the guys around us started kissing each other on the lips. I'd never seen this before. And what happened was we'd marched, we'd kind of marched in in front of this big banner that said Gays Against the Nazis or something like that. So we were kind of in that. But initially it threw me. And I thought, why are these gays here? It's about black people. What are they doing here? But it didn't take very long. For me to grasp that actually the fascists are against anyone who's in any way different. It's not just; it's about discrimination. It's about sexism. It's about racism. Obviously, it's about homophobia. So I kind of got a a moment there at a gig where my perception of the world was changed to the extent that I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today if it hadn't happened to me. Um, But it was all done by the audience, not by the bands, not by the music but by the audience. So in that sense, I think you have to understand where the power lies in the wonderful exchange of ideas that is going to a gig and not kind of kid yourself that you on stage are anything more than a uh, a lightning rod, maybe a signpost, but really just uh, someone who is trying to create a sense of emotional and possibly political solidarity, but emotional first solidarity through song. That's what you're trying to do, engage the audience in the ideas that you're putting out, make them feel a connection with that and through that a connection with everybody else so that when you sing that song that means so much to them and everybody else is singing it too, they feel that whatever emotions have invested in that song are accepted by everyone in the room, not just by you who wrote the song, but by everyone else in the room and they take away some of that uh, sense of connection Um, and and he is a form of solidarity they take away that and it it helps them you know they're able to put that song on and find a little bit of that solidarity again what an amazing thing that music can do to be able to do something like that how lucky we are those of us who love music
1: there's a quote if you're not liberal when you're younger you don't have a heart if you're not conservative when you're older you don't have a brain that tends to be the course that a lot of people take in life as they get older they they tend to trend increasingly in conservative I, i know that you know for me and certainly in the last four or five years i've i've only drifted further left after everything that's happened which is already starting from a you know a, a fairly a fairly left place to begin with for your own politics over the years do, do you feel that they've evolved in any kind of meaningful way
0: yeah they have they've become less ideological for me um you know, I didn't have, as, as I mentioned, my first political activism was work against racism. So I came into politics on a very humanitarian level. I didn't come in in a ideological level. I didn't come in, in a, a, you know, I never went to university, so I didn't learn about politics. I wasn't involved in the Marxist aspects of the left. I was involved much more in the social democratic or democratic socialist left in the Labour Party. Um and in the 1980s, as a result of my experiences during the 1984 minor strike, I began to write songs quite in a quite ideological bent. You know, it's like there's power in the union, between the wars, ideology itself, those songs. But by the time I, I, I got to the mid-90s, I found myself thinking more about compassion. Now, there's a number of reasons why this could be. One, uh, Margaret Thatcher had gone. Uh, two, the Berlin Wall come down. and The Soviet Union dissolved and the Cold War was over. And three, I became someone's dad. Now, probably any one of those three would have forced Billy Bragg to think about how he put across his ideas. But all three together in the space of as many years, you know, what else could I do? So I find myself on on uh, William Bloke talking about socialism of the heart as opposed to socialism of the head. Socialism of the head being ideology, socialism of the heart being compassion. And now I find myself talking about politics in very broad brushstrokes that my ideological, my Marxist friends in the 1980s would have laughed in my face to hear me talking about compassion, to hear me talking about empathy, to hear me talking about accountability. And certainly they would be, appalled to hear me say that the real enemy of all of us who want to make the better world is not capitalism or conservatism, it's cynicism. So in that sense, my politics have changed, but I'd like to think that that they've given me a, a deeper understanding of the way the world is and a more accessible way of putting my ideas across to my audience. You know, there's no point in me writing songs about Margaret Thatcher. She's gone. That's all, you know. That's behind us now. And I I don't miss that. I don't miss any of that shit. I don't miss the Berlin Wall. I don't miss Ronald Reagan. Forget it. But there's still a leftist tradition that runs through that and that carries on. So I'm, you know, I'd like to think I'm part of that. You know, I updated the Internationale to try and make it more reflective of where we were in the 21st century. And I update my politics in the same kind of way. You know, I find myself um, having to... Whether I want to or not, I have to talk about the rise of authoritarianism. I'd rather not talk about that. It's, it's really disheartening to see people turning away from democracy. Um, but equally, this is where politics is. And so to try and um, take the, the, the parameters that I learned during the miners' strike, which, which broadly was, would say will be the, the parameters of Marxism, That's the language that people spoke, and I kind of tried to understand that language. Nobody talks that language anymore. It doesn't mean shit to anybody. But if you talk about you want to live in a compassionate society, people kind of understand that, you know. So it's trying to make yourself understood in a new generation. So you know, when I I look at the 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 great uh, political campaigns of the 21st century, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. Extinction Rebellion, which is an environmental campaign, here. Although they're incredibly different in their aims, what binds them together is that they are accountability movements. So my analysis, the most recent book I wrote was called "The Three Dimensions of Freedom," which makes the case that we need liberty, equality, and accountability. That idea is borne out by the facts. I'm not trying to come up with a, a you know a left field. Out of whack idea. I'm trying to respond and make sense of the actual situation that I see in front of me and not run away from that. And sometimes it can be quite um confusing. You know, I um a few uh in my last American tour actually, which was in uh twenty nineteen, a woman in Boston said to me, You know that song sexuality bill? There's nothing really radical about a middle aged man having a beer with a gay man anymore, mate, you know? You really should update that. The front line now is in the, the transgender and... and uh, non-binary. Yeah, thank you. Non-binary area. So, you know, I, I've been forced to accept that and to try to, to get to grips with that issue, which is a very complicated issue, uh, particularly in the UK, where many of uh, formerly left-wing feminists who we were stood shoulder to shoulder with during the minor strike seem to have gone over to being uh, trans-exclusionary. So these things are complicated uh, but I'm trying, not, I'm trying not only to get my head around them, but I'm also trying to encourage my audience to. There's a song on the new album uh, called Mid-Century Modern. And it's, its key line in that is, uh, you know, positions I took long ago feel comfy as an old armchair. You know, but the kids that pull the statues down, they challenge me to see the gap between the man I am and the man I want to be. And it's about how we've drifted away from our ideals. Those of us who were born in the 50s and came of age during punk and the 1980 struggles against Margaret Thatcher, we've kind of allowed ourselves to drift away a little bit. And now, you know, rather than sit on the sidelines and carp about this isn't how we used to do politics, we really need to start listening, get off our arses, and do our best to engage in a way that, you know, supports, because it's not really that different. I mean, the things that, Liz Truss was saying about uh, to attack trans women during the uh, leadership campaign for the conservative party was exactly, exactly almost word for word. What Margaret Thatcher said about gays and lesbians, you know, it's all about toilets and children. So it's not that complicated, but it does take some effort. And I'd like to encourage my audience to take that effort. You know, we're mostly gray haired mostly guys is what I have to say, uh, white guys. So I'm, I'm, aware that we need to up our game. And I'm trying to through my music to gently encourage people to do that
1: specifically. And, and obviously this is part of a longer tradition of updating songs to meet the moment. I don't know if it's new, uh, the new version, but the, the update to sexuality, it it's beautiful. How the new version of it slots in perfectly, you know, just because you're gay is like such a beautiful and easy
0: fix. Yeah. It is, yeah. It is. I thought about it and I thought, you know what? It's not that hard to do. I'm just going to tweak this. I'm going to tweak that. Of course, I, I got a shitstorm on Twitter about it when I was on tour. I woke up one morning. It's never good, Brian, to wake up one morning and find yourself trending. It's like, oh, my God, what did I say last night, mate? You know, you're sitting down trying to have your breakfast. And you're like, you know, you go into your mentions and it's just like a shitstorm of stuff. And so you're sitting there drinking your coffee and your thumb – He's just scrolling down and you're trying to get back to the bit where it, how did this start? What did I do? Ah, I see. They're upset that I changed two words in a song. Jeez. Okay. This is what is this is what has caused this. Causes. So yeah, that was a that was an interesting morning trying to play catch up with that one.
1: I had Wayne Kramer on the show a couple of months ago. What a great guy. Yeah, and you know, obviously the two of you worked really close together on on prison reform why is that a subject that people are so hesitant to discuss it seems like one of the last few things that even a lot of people on the left don't want to talk about
0: because they try and keep it out of their mind because they they um judge people in that situation i think um because they tend you know to think of the victim um and i understand that i do completely understand that but the, the thing is that the people who are currently in prison, they're going to get out someday, in my country anyway, and you know, they might come and live next door to you. Don't you think it might be a good idea if we did a little bit to try and help them with whatever problem it is they have that got them in prison in the first place? Because most of them ever, uh, you know, are not uh, classic evil people. Some are, undoubtedly, and those people maybe should never come out. I don't know. But those people who are redeemable, shouldn't we make some effort to redeem them? And I think, you know, I... Uh, Understood that Wayne definitely because he's been in prison. He you know, really really understands that, and he's a, I'd say he's a much better advocate at it than I am because I'm coming in from outside.
1: To put it in context, and we discuss this a bit. He not only was he in prison, but he was in prison in the U.S. at a time when they moved away from reform, when it went to just straight
0: punishment. See, my thing is that you know going to prison is the punishment. When you're there, you have an opportunity to to change these people's lives. I can remember being in one of our big prisons in London, Brixton, when we were sorting out some guitars for some inmates there. And one of the prison officers said to me, he said, you know, Bill, this is great what you're doing, but if we could just teach these people to read and write while doing our care, we could make such a, 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 a huge uh, uh, change in the, in the crime rate in our country, you know, and it's, it really is down to that. It's down to, to thinking of prison as an opportunity to help people to turn their lives around, and and investing in that, and I think it is something worth investing in. But again, it's not very popular. People have very harsh reactions to that, and in some ways, that's why someone like myself or Wayne want to go and do that because you know there is lots of people out there who are willing to save the polar bears, and I am all in favour of saving polar bears. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I am happy to come and play a gig for you, but plenty of people are willing to do that, and it's those things where people don't want to go that I think it's, it's worth taking up those issues um, because, uh, you know, I don't mind being old and I don't mind not being in the charts anymore, but I do mind not being relevant. So in order to remain relevant, you don't just rely on your back catalogue and your old songs and who you were 30, 40 years ago. You have to, you know, you have to keep trying cutting new ground and creating more sparks about something different and you know that's what that's what i try and do in the way that i whether it's jail guitar doors writing books doing gigs writing songs loud mouthing on the internet that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to cut through the ice